Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Ilya Nyshuler, a Russian film director whose credits include Hardcore Henry and Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk, a fun and action-packed movie from the writer and producers of the John Wick franchise. The 37-year-old called in from a small office in a Russian movie theater in between screenings of his new film. And in today's conversation, Ilya and I discuss a wide range of topics. How directing a music video titled Bad Motherfuckers That Went Viral led him to receive a fully financed offer to make his first feature film. How that film became Hardcore Henry, an indie video game-like film experience shot as a first shooter for $2 million. Also, a deep dive discussion on Ilya's new movie, Nobody. From the two-year training Bob Odenkirk went through to physically prepare for the role, to Ilya directing the film with only six weeks of pre-production and 34 days of principal photography, how he worked with 8711, perhaps the most famous stunt team in Hollywood, to design the stunt sequences in the movie, including the iconic bus fight featured in the trailer, a preview of his upcoming project, all of this and much more. If it's your first time enjoying the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. Make sure to track us down on Facebook and Twitter to catch a preview of the Oscar-winning guests we'll be interviewing this season. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Ilya, thank you so much for coming on the show. It means a lot. Before talking about Nobody, your new movie, I would love to talk about your experience shooting Hardcore Henry from 2015. It's an amazing video game-like film experience. You write, produce, direct it. And I think what makes it so successful is, is that if on one end you have the support of a producer like Timur Bekmambetov, on the other, it sounds like you guys embrace the fact that you were a, a group of Russian friends and you extract as much production value out of stunts and special effects in and around Moscow. So I was wondering with Hardcore Henry, how did you try to plan as big of a movie as possible just by using the locations, actors, and resources that you had in Russia? Back then, um, the ruble, our currency, was quite a bit stronger because the budget was not in dollars. That's the conversion. It was We started with two. The original plan was to shoot it in 40 days, which is such a bullshit plan. We all knew it was never going to work, but we wanted to get everybody pregnant and then go from there. Not the right way of making a movie at all. But in our defense, in my defense, we shook hands with Timor to make the film on April the 1st, and we started shooting July the 1st. And that's without having anything. So April the 1st, there's no script, there's nothing. Just the concept, POV. Let's see what happens. Originally, we were supposed to make a, a music video. That's what it was, a 90-minute or 80-minute music video with an even simpler story than what we had at the end. Not much dialogue. And I, I sat down just, to, I was like, all right, let's write a script for this weird thing. And I think on page two, I was like, wait a minute. That's never going to work. We're going to need a proper story. We're going to need some actors. We're going to make it in English. And it's just unreal to start shooting it in whatever many months we have. We had three months. Yet, we had to. So we were prepping the movies. I was writing the movie, which is ridiculous. Basically, you're writing, instead of writing a script, you're writing a production script, if that makes sense. You're writing about 
exactly how many days you think you can do it, when, when you can get Charlto on it. And we didn't know if Charlto was going to be in the movie. In fact, Charlto came in and then he quit about three weeks before the shoot because the script wasn't ready. And he said, you're going to run out of time. You're going to run out of money and you're going to run out of story. And I flew out to Berlin where he was promoting Elysium at the time. And it turned out that George Clooney talked him into doing it. And I arrived, I was like, I have to, I have to get Charlotte back. And I arrived and Charles was like, no, I'll do it. You know, I changed my mind. I'm like, what changed your mind? He's like, well, George Clooney told me that if it's a piece of shit, no one's going to see it. If it's anything other than that, everyone's going to see it. I was like, thank you, Mr. Clooney. So I left him a nice bottle of vodka at the, the front desk of the hotel. Anyway, that's not how you make a film. At the end, instead of 40 days, and this is something I never tell producers. I, I, I feel good about telling you now because I did Nobody in 34 days and on time and under budget. So now I know that I can actually um, work professionally. It took 123 days to get hardcore right, which is ridiculous. Marvel movies don't shoot that long. I was, remember talking to the Russo brothers and they were like, how many? And I was like, 123? And I'm like, man, that's more than we had in Civil War. I'm like, yeah, but you guys weren't creating a new language. You guys were shooting a film you understood. You had storyboards, and you guys knew what you were doing. I never made a movie before. I never made a POV movie before, that's for sure. So, you know, in three months while we were prepping, we were also, you know, testing a lot of equipment. We we're doing a lot of uh, printing onto the DCPs and watching the big screen, seeing how much shape you can get away with. It was an arduous experience. I mean, every film is hard to make. Everybody knows that. But this one had a layer of extra layer of difficulty because we did not have that many professionals. A lot of us were first timers. The only people who knew what they were doing, thankfully, were the stuntmen and the producers. Everybody else was kind of like, let's fucking go. And that's what we did. So it's a movie that was made by, you know, the, the, the true blood, sweat and tears mantra. I just wanted to touch on, on your casting choices because even before Nobody, you know, I noticed a pattern of you taking extremely talented actors who often play supporting roles and letting them shine by placing them front and center in action-based films. I'm a very big fan of, of Sholto and he appears through and through the movie uh, in multiple roles. So just out of curiosity, why do you think he was the right choice to carry Hardcore Henry entirely on his shoulders? You know, it's strange. I never... I think when I started writing and I got to the first Jimmy, the first character that he plays, I started describing him. I was thinking, who can, who can do this? Because I knew there was going to be, you know, at that point, I did not have the multiple Jimmys in, in mind. And I thought, all right, it'd be cool if it was played by, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of District 9, as everybody should be. And I'm disappointed that film didn't make much of an impact. It made an impact box office-wise. People loved the movie. It made an impact for Neil, for Shelto, but no other studio was like, all right, let's do more $30 million science fiction, you know, on fresh faces. Because I thought this would be a breakthrough. Of course, it wasn't because it wasn't strong enough for precedent, apparently, sadly. But Charlto, I got on the call with him because Timor knew him from, from, from a while back. And I said, look, we're doing a POE film. I am about to write the script. If you're interested in the concept, and he loved the Bad Motherfucking Music video, which obviously makes things a lot easier. And I said, look, if you like the concept, I'll write a part for you. And it'll be funny. It'll be exciting. It'll be something you've never done before. And he was like, if the part is good, I'm down. So, you know, I closed the computer. This is back when we were still using Skype. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, what character am I going to come up with? And I needed Charlto for the film. I really needed him. So what part can I write that he will not be able to say no to? And I realized that if I was an actor, I would have loved to play a part where there's lots of parts. It's just, it's just such an exciting possibility. You, you, very rarely do you get it, and especially nowadays. You know, there were more films earlier in cinema where people got away with it, but you know, apart from Split, I can't think of any examples recently. So I came back to him. I said, look, how about you play a character called Jimmy, and there's 10 or a dozen of you, and each one has different characteristics. You're all this mildly, mildly autistic, 
most likely the homosexual dude who's going to be a very colorful heart and soul of the film because Henry doesn't exist. He's not, you know, he's the audience. He's a placeholder slash avatar. So you're going to be the guy who's going to carry the whole thing. There's going to be a lot of hard work, a lot of accents, a lot of different, you know, mustaches and makeup. And it's going to be fun because your character pretty much plays with dolls. That's what he's doing. And plus I thought it'd be so great to have an action film where the main character is not this brutal dude, but this kind of um, gay guy who, who makes all these costumes and has a lot of fun and kills a lot of people. I, I just thought, you know, might as well. That's why the guy's called Henry. Uh, not that because I wanted to have a name that did not sound like Jack or Joe, just a softer, more, you know, like I wanted to be another option with Eugene because that's the, like the sort of the weakest sounding, less masculine name I could think of. But Henry is named after one of my favorite book authors, Andri Charrier, who wrote Papillon, which the movies are based on. So I thought, you know, let's kill some birds with that. So let's call him Henry and he's going to be, and Charles is going to play Jimmy and it's going to be wild. So I talked to Charles. I said, this is it. This is the script. And it was super rough. Like literally I wrote this whole, whole script with like ice. It's all, it's all written in POV, which was a lot of fun. It's a lot easier to write and be exciting in that form and get away with a lot more. It's much more flexible, especially for, for uh, this is my first script in English too. So that was kind of um, not the easiest thing, but uh, Charlton loved it. He got excited. So the mission worked is that you just get the actor excited. If you want to work with someone who you really want to work with, you give them something that they just can't say no to. Obviously we didn't have crazy money. Uh, we had a ridiculous schedule. We had, you know, shooting in Russia, not in the easiest conditions at that time, although it ended up being super soft in terms of, you know, we got him everything to make his life as comfortable as possible. So, your name's Henry, and, okay, well, the good news is that you're going to live a while. The bad news is that in this case, a while means 20, 30 minutes tops, Henry, unless you're very, very lucky which you are. Uncle Jimmy is going to take you to his lab. So let me transition into talking about Nobody. You had six weeks of pre-production. How do you think your creative approach to the film would have been different if he had more than six weeks? I'll tell you what would have happened. I think the finale would have been, the finale action would have, would have been upgraded. That's the only thing that, because we spent enough time in the bus fight. We spent enough time, pretty much all the stuff, locations, casting and everything, that was tight, but it was very doable. I love the fact that it was, you know, now I can say I love the fact that it was six weeks because it just made us work. You know, Pavel and I, the DP, Pavel Pekarzowski, we worked seven-day weeks. We enjoyed the hell out of it. It was never, sure, again, it's always difficult, yada, 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 but we knew that we have a chance to make something special. You know, I did the storyboards before the six weeks. I flew out to Canada. It was September the 1st I flew out, and I had 2,000 shots uh, on Google Drive. So by the time uh, Pavel, the producers, everybody arrived in Winnipeg, I had all the walls covered, and you could just go and through the corridors of the office and see the entire movie. And that, of course, if we didn't have that, then I think it would have been a much weaker film. Storyboards is, is the most important thing, hands down. The rest is having you know, a strong team and being able to convey exactly what you want as precisely as, as you can. Let me ask you a little bit about your relationship with shooting action, because obviously there's a lot of it in the film. And, and I think what, what good action cinema comes down to at the end is blending weapons, locations, and vehicles in a unique mix that you simply haven't seen. How do you think your own directing style evolved from Hardcore Henry to Nobody, especially when it comes to prepping and shooting action? Well, I think Hardcore taught me a lot about stunts and, and, and a lot more than that about CG. Because there was, you know, we had 90 days of stunts. So I pretty much, I know within reason exactly what we need to be doing. I know what we need to be doing in terms of CG, even though Nobody is a very CG-like film. It's very, due to its sort of 
elevated groundness. <laughs> elevated groundness does not sound uh, like it makes sense, but it does. Um, it should in this context. We had a great team of um, of some people. We had Greg Rementer, who prevised everything very thoroughly. We discussed at length, and he go and previs. We we sit, discuss, edit, recut, and we kind of nailed it all down. We had look, we had a star and Bob who you know, worked his ass off for two years prepping for the role. So I knew right away that all my hopes of making it, you know, no shaky cam, make it very sort of premeditated, calm, and let the action speak for itself, not go into crazy, you know, 11 cuts a second, jump over the fence thing. You know what I'm talking about. It's not how I want to do things. And obviously, you know, with, with Bob, who started training at the age of 55, you know, and can do 15 pull-ups, three takes in a row, that's pretty ridiculous. It makes everybody's job much easier. And I remember talking to everybody and they were saying that you got to treasure this moment because very rarely will you get a star who's willing to work this hard to get the results. So our original approach right from the get-go with Bob is that we're going to make this an honest film. We're really going to phone nothing in. We're not going to use stun doubles unless it's absolutely necessary due to insurance issues. And most importantly, and this is all sort of the technical aspect, most importantly, you cannot possibly go wrong when you think about every action scene in terms of character and secondary in terms of story because pretty much every action scene is 10 dudes come in you know one dude comes out that's every single action scene it's like the basic shitty description right the question is how you go about it how many fresh things you can insert into the action sequence how many times you can surprise the audience and with bob you also get the major advantage of having an actor who will emote throughout it's not just you know terminator face punch the shit out of everybody cut which works. I mean, I love those movies. It's great. They're good to watch. But I thought if I'm going to do an American action film, then I want to do something that is as special as we can possibly make it. So there's a lot of discussions, a lot of previses, a lot of Bob training. And then, you know, it wasn't difficult to edit because we knew exactly what we were doing. I think we lost maximum of five action beats throughout the entire film because that's how good we shot them. And it was, of course, a huge team effort. And you're lucky enough, not only lucky enough, but also you're smart enough to team up with 8711. I need to ask you about the bus fight because I think the genius in there, and I saw it right from the trailer, I saw Daniel Bernard and I was like, that's great. Daniel Bernard, the guy who trains Bob is also in the fight. Yep. And I, I just got to ask you, how many nights of shooting did you have inside the bus? And how did you guys try to work together to choreograph it in a way where it could only have taken place in a bus? It's, uh, we always thought of it as our, in terms of mood, very old boyish in terms of how, uh, you know, we even discussed maybe cutting the bus in half and doing that, that frontal approach. And we kind of thought, no, 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 let's, let's, let's keep this a little less comic booky and, and more, and just a little rougher. My description for Bob was always in the scene that he is the Wolverine, but not the Hugh Jackman Wolverine, the animal Wolverine. Because if you see how Wolverine fights, that's what Bob is doing. And we always knew very early on from me working the script with Bob and Derek is that the character is going to be wounded. Bob's character, Hutch, he's not going to be, you know, just plowing through like a knife through butter. It's going to be a situation where he's taking punches, he's bleeding, he's hurt, but he's still persevering. And not just because we wanted the audience to relate, but because it just makes things so much more intriguing. Because we all know when you watch an action film, the hero is going to triumph, especially if it's a, you know, a first third of the film. He's going to be okay. But we still have to play with, we've got to give the audience a moment or hopefully many moments throughout each action scene where he's like, I don't know how he's going to make it. And I've learned this from hardcore is that if you have interesting geography, that's understandable to the audience. You have elements that can be used as weapons throughout the geography and you hint at things that could be used, but then the character uses them in a different way that surprises you. That's always such a, it's kind of like a pop song. You know why pop music works? Because every time you get to the chorus, by the time you get to the second chorus, your mind knows what's going to happen and you get a hit of dopamine because like, oh, I know what's coming and here it is. I got it. I guessed it. 
So the brain kind of just, you know, does the Jonah Hill, ah, gif. <laughs> it was not easy shooting in the bus, just again, because super tight space. And obviously we had the, the whole floor was padded. It was kind of cold with winter peg. So that's where we shot. It's obviously going to be cold. They, they're so, they're so proud of the fact that, uh, and I love Winnipeg and I love the people, but I love how they were always saying in winter, it gets colder than on Mars. And we were shooting in October, November, December. So yeah. Good thing we weren't there in February, I'll tell you that much. Uh, the car chase was impossible. It was just, this is the only time where we stopped joking. Because Pavel and I just, we were nonstop making our shitty jokes to each other. You know, we'd sing shitty 80s and 90s songs in the car. We were traveling and checking spots out. And it's the only time where I remember walking up to him. We had like 15 layers of clothing. The car is there. And Bob's in the car with the earmuffs between the shots. Because it is fucking freezing. I think the car's heater is broken, of course. And Pavel's sitting there on the, on, on the Apple box. And I'm like, I make another terrible joke. And he just turns to me. I'll never forget he turns to me in the most serious face ever. He's like, Ilya, not now. So, yeah, that wasn't as cold as the outside car chase, but the bus was pretty cold. In terms of how long it took us to shoot, it was about half a day, half, half a night, six hours to shoot the Hummer crash. Because everything in America takes long. Every time there's a car crash, it just takes, you know, you have to have 30 minutes of safety meetings. You know, nobody got hurt during the making of hardcore. We had about half an hour of safety meetings over the entire course. Because people just, you just, before you do something, say, guys, back the fuck up. Be careful over here. Don't fall in this hole. Car's coming from there. That's it. But America's a litigious society, so everybody's got to cover their asses, and we got to talk, talk, talk. At a certain point, I started arriving late on set on stun days because I was like, I'm not listening to this because I know where I need to be standing not to be killed by fucking Hummer. And again, great stunt team. So it's not like we're working with amateurs. So I felt very relaxed around them. So it's half a night for the crash and uh, the, the I've got to be me part where all the guys are coming in. We're setting up the chess pieces on the board. Uh, he does the, I'm going to fuck you up, which I'm going to fuck you up. And the script originally was, uh, was a page of a, it's a page of a monologue, maybe three quarters. And it was a beautiful monologue. Derek can write really nicely. And it was a monologue about how the universe gives you what you want. It was a great, strong monologue, but we were rehearsing with Bob in my place the Sunday before that. And Bob was, you know, going through with emotions, doing the gun and emptying the bullets. And at a certain point we're saying, Bob, that's all great and beautiful, except this is going to be around minute 27, 30, depending on the cut. And by that point, people just want to see you fuck people up. So how about you just say, I'm going to fuck you up. Let's try it. So when he does it. I'm going to fuck you up with this great smile of Bob Kindle. This is the first time the character smiles in the entire film, by the way. I always made a point that he smiles the first time on the bus when he sees the bullies coming toward him. And then when he empties the gun is his little smirk. So that saved us a lot of time on the day. And of course, it's in the trailer. And it's that moment where I remember we're doing the, the push on him when he empties the bullets from the, from the revolver and... I was trying to figure out the time. He just felt a little odd. And I remember David Leach was there with us that day. And he's like, Ilya, ask him to wait until you land. And it's such a simple thing. And I remember it's just so nice to have producers who know what they're doing. And I'm lucky. Two movies in a row where I had producers who are also directors. And they know exactly how I feel. So they never push for things. But they suggest. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy. So when someone, you know, who I trust and respect says, hey, check this out. Maybe this. I don't just go, oh, it's ego. It's mine. No, I go, eh, wait a minute. You know, we're making my movie and I get the best of, you know, uh, some very talented folks. So three days all in for the bus. So it's two and a half, two and a half days for the fight, nights. In Russia, we work super long hours on everything. Like commercials, we shoot for 25 hours, 26 hours. It's natural. It's just everyone's used to it. We're good. People get overpay, overtime pay and we take it and we accept it. It's, it's, there's no unions, unfortunately. And this is something that we're working on right now. But when I was told that this is going to be a 13-hour day with no uh, ability to go over, I was kind of like, interesting. Let's see how I do here. And we did. We only went over once and that was discussed like two weeks up front. So three exact days. So 39 hours for the bus fight. Everything leading up to it. That's it. 
So they took maybe 20 bucks and an old watch? Mr. Madsen, did you even take a swing? No. Could have taken her, Dad. Heard you had some excitement last night. I wish they'd have picked my place, you know? Why didn't you take him out? I was just trying to keep the damage to a minimum. Yeah, how's that working out for you? You okay? Because you don't look okay. There's a long dormant piece of me that so very badly wants out. What are you still doing here, old man? I'm gonna fuck you up. Well, I, I gotta ask about Tone because I think when you study the work of filmmakers, even though your career is just getting started, it's beautiful to me seeing the common patterns. And when it comes to Tone, I think a common element I've found in all of your work, it, not only the films, but also the music videos, is the entertaining combination between violence and comedy, which tonally is a very thin line to ride. I have one quote that I'm gonna quote back to you. This is yours. Quote, when you have violent violence, the jokes hit much harder. Likewise, when you have little comedic likeness, the punches hit much harder." Close quote. So why do you think you're so attracted to infuse both a comedic and a violent angle in almost all of your work? Well, truth is I really love action and I really love comedies no less. And I'm not a huge fan of action films. I'm a fan, but not a huge fan of action films where the violence is truly mean. There's films that, you know, do phenomenal choreography, just phenomenal choreography. But I want to take a shower afterwards. And I remember doing Hardcore, and Hardcore is a pretty rough movie. I mean, it's like, it's the hardest R rating that I'll ever do, for sure. You know, people's heads get ripped off using someone's optic nerve. It's pretty ridiculous and over the top and just silly. That's what it is. It's a silly movie. I made it for 15-year-old me, so it made total sense. But I remember when I put it together, and I'm looking through it, and I'm seeing that there are moments that I, even I squirm, like the hand rip is always like, Ugh. it's a little too much, but it's still always got a soul of light and a very sort of warm hearted approach. And I remember talking to my CG supervisor, who's this much more experienced older man. And I remember talking to him after the premiere, just about that tone question. And I was very proud how we, I think we managed to walk the line and same with nobody. And he said, Ilya, the reason I think it works, the reason I think you do this is because you're a pretty good human being. As much as you like seeing blood flying around the screen, I know that you don't enjoy real violence and you don't want to hurt people. And I think it's, to go on with that, it's, I'm kind of undecided. I think I'll die that way where I love serious things, but I also love incredibly just silly, goofy bullshit. And I just can't make up my mind. So what happens is as I write or I, you know, come up with scenes, I always ping pong back and forth between the two extremes. And, and, and frankly, it's, as I said in that quote that I'm actually very proud of, because I thought you're gonna, you're gonna come back with a quote, I'll be like, God damn it, I said that. But no, it's a pretty good quote. And I think it's a very entertaining approach. When I think of my favorite films, there are certainly films there that I'll never watch again. They're just stressful, anxiety-inducing, but incredibly well-made. And there's also movies like Anchorman, which I probably rewatched, and Hot Fuzz, which I rewatched you know, a dozen times each. So I think ultimately, at this point, I'm more interested in movies that have big replayability values and films that no matter how dark they get, they're still going to be feel good and be infused with that. Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Well, I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen. For 12 years, 
I work for some very dangerous people. Everybody get to the basement. What is happening? Don't call 911. I used to be what they call an auditor. The last guy anyone wants to see at their door. Because it meant you didn't have long to live. But I left it behind to start a family. I might have uh, overcorrected. They came after my family. They stole my kitty cat bracelet. And you don't fucking do that. Give me the goddamn kitty cat bracelet. You look like shit, Dad. You should see the other guys. Who the fuck are you? Me? I'm nobody. You spoke about the fact that Hardcore Henry, you did for the 15-year-old version of you. Nobody you really made for your dad. You said that's the kind of movie you would love. And I know you're going to be directing the film adaptation of Leaving Berlin, which is a spy thriller love story set in post-World War II. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the way you go to choose certain projects as you watch your own career evolve. What kind of stories do you want to be directing moving forward? And why do you think Leaving Berlin feels like the right project at this point in your life? Uh, with Ian Berlin, I felt there were elements in the book that really resonated, just truly, honestly resonated. As we went into writing the scripts, the, the drafts, there's all the bells and whistles of the action, which is going to be great. I don't, it, it, you know, when I pitched Nobody to Bob, my take on it, I didn't talk about the action once. I talked about the story. Because I think at a certain point, I just grew the fuck up. Time has come. You know, all that toy soldier stuff, great, love it. Let's do something with meat, not just ice cream. With Leaving Berlin, there is... The lead character, Alex, German Jew, escapes from the Holocaust right before, escapes from Germany right before the Holocaust, becomes a big LA screenwriter, get kicked out during the Red Scare by Senator Nixon, get, comes back to East Germany thinking it's going to be a socialist paradise, but he sees that it's shit. The people are depressed, the city's bombed out, the Soviets are assholes, the CIA is after him, they're assholes, the German uh, authorities are assholes. So it pretty much, it's very anti-authoritarian movie. It's very anti-war. It's very pro-human because the lead character, and this is why I'm, I hope this movie gets a chance to be made, the lead is a guy who's got a very strong spine, who's got a very strong identification of his morals and his ideals. And no matter how tough things get, and things get very tough very quickly, he stays sort of on the path of the righteous man. And I feel like there's not enough movies being made about that. Over the last decade, as I've been growing up, I've been seeing that the world is much tougher and rougher than I kind of viewed it when I was younger. Obviously, you know, you're, you're young, you're, you're, you know, in the 90s, I was, you know, I was a kid, I was kind of a teenager, I was like, yeah, life is great, and yeah, but I feel like the overall quality of life might have risen. We have cell phones and Xboxes and Netflix, it's great and super comfortable, but generally, there's a lot of dark things happening that are, used to be so well hidden, but now thanks to the internet, it's all out there, and the kind of shit that people are getting away with, and the complete lack of empathy, it's truly just disturbing. So, I don't pretend that I'll make the world a better place, but what if I make the world a tiniest, like a sliver better for somebody and maybe present a role model of how to maybe view things? If I do that while making an entertaining, fun movie, isn't that going to be great? Isn't that a dream come true? And there you have it, folks. 
Thank you to Ilya for calling in to record this episode and to the team at IDPR for setting this conversation up. Be sure to check out Ilya's new movie, Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk, which is now playing in theaters. If you enjoy your program, you can learn more by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. We ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.